You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, uh... Couldn't help but notice that you are sporting a large bandage on the front of your neck area, what neck I would region. describe as the neck region. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? What's up? Well, you know I'm doing the beard thing, right? Oh, yeah. You've been doing the beard for for months. Well, every once in a while, you got to shave your neck, uh-huh. but not very often. Right. And I got to, you know, I tend to let it go a little bit longer than I should. Um, and then when I get out my, my rusty old hardly used razor to, to get to shaving, Let's just say maybe I'm out of practice. Maybe I'm just impatient. Maybe I, maybe I just I, I'm not with it anymore. Uh, and so yeah, I pretty much cut the hell out of myself. So you gashed yourself open with your own razor. Yeah, in the throat region. Yeah, yes. Not a place that you want to be uh, having mishaps involving a razor blade. But you know what? I didn't I didn't call in sick to the podcast because of it. I slapped a band aid on there and I got over here. Well, let me just set the scene for the kids at home though. It's a pretty big band aid. Well, like, it looks like someone like my, my I expected the explanation to be that you got a some kind of injection, like a an anti syphilis injection or something at the hospital. They have those? <laughs> because it's I'll be a, right back. It's a huge like it's a big band aid. Well, it like, doesn't need to be this big. You're practically it's... wearing like a Bobby the Brain Heenan style neck brace right now. <laughs> Oh, would that I have thought of that. Uh, I should clarify that these are just the only size Band-Aids we had in the house. I could have made do with a Band-Aid half this size, easily. Uh, now, we don't want to, you know, I don't want to spend the whole t- show talking about your beard, but... Uh, it's kind of already gone on too long. I just uh, I just want to say that your beard, to me, is looking a little bit more Nate Marquardt and a little bit less Johnny Hendricks than I would like it to. You're clearly taking an active role in trimming the beard, which... Yes. Which I'm going to say is not not the way to go. Look, man, I don't I don't want this to get all, you know, like mountain man living off in the wilderness, ha- you know, only sees his reflection in a still pond every two weeks kind right, of beard. I, I don't want that. I do want it to become that kind of beard, primarily because it's not on my face; it's on your face. Look, you know that I'm a I'm a man who who cares about his appearance, so I'm just not going to let it go that way. I guess so. I'm not happy about it, but I guess I have to respect it. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by GoDaddy.com. GoDaddy is offering some deals exclusively for Co-Main Event Podcast listeners. If you've got a website or you've got any website needs at all, you can go to GoDaddy.com and enter the promo code EVENT, that's E-V-E-N-T, or just click the GoDaddy banner from our website, which is there now. Good work. That's up there. Way to go. Yeah. Only took us like three weeks into this campaign. I didn't do it myself. I had to call someone who was much, much more uh, knowledgeable about websites. I find that so easy to believe. Anyway, you click that uh, banner over there on comainevent.com and you'll get one new f- transfer or new. Well, let me do that again. You'll get one new or transfer.com domain name for only $1.99 for the first year of registration. There are some limitations that apply, so you're going to have to go there and check the website. Uh, but that's GoDaddy.com and the promo code EVENT. As usual, though, three rounds in the co-main event podcast this week. In round number one, George St. Pierre takes his leave, and the welterweight division immediately devolves into a feeding frenzy. And in round number two, is the secret to promoting the flyweights to have the champion suddenly start knocking motherfuckers out? Probably. And in round number three, Team Alpha Male went two and two at its Invitational Mixed Martial Arts show last Saturday. I guess that's pretty good, but how long before we're justified in asking whether these little dudes have trouble winning the biggest fights? That's opposites. Yeah. did opposites there. I see how you, you crafted that. Spent all morning on it, I bet. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But, but right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Ben, the first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from David Golden, uh, who, by the way, hit us up on Twitter to warn us that his 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 uh, question was neither concise uh, and that it it, uh, it was full of numbers. Well, we should clarify, though, that we did not choose his question because he hit us up on Twitter to talk to us about it, because that 
statistically, I don't think increases your odds. Of being no, selected. I would say possibly the opposite. Yes. Uh, anyway, this this from David Golden this week. At UFC 168, spectators will be asked to fork over an additional $5 to watch the pay-per-view. I understand that for most people, $5 isn't necessarily a make-or-break kind of increase, and for me, it won't make a difference. The problem I have is no one is telling me why the UFC needs an additional $5. I was thinking that this increase could be an answer to the oft-present fighter pay issue. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. This is where the numbers come in. The UFC has said this increase is related to the quality of the card. Uh, have they actually said that? No. Okay. That's right. kind of the point. Okay. So let's look at the average pay-per-view buy rate for Anderson Silva's last 10 pay-per-view fights. Assuming Wikipedia, Wikipedia is at least close, Silva has an average buy rate of 592000 over his last 10 pay-per-views. With those numbers, our $5 contributions total $2.96 million. Now we dole out the additional revenue to the 22 fighters on that card, giving each fighter $134,545.45. That is some shit I could get behind, even if the UFC gives the fighters just $1 out of every $5. The fighters get nearly $27,000. I know this is wishful thinking, but uh, what do you guys think? I think giving uh, fighters the additional pay-per-view revenue... <laughs> Yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> you know, I I like that he takes a generous approach to trying to figure out the UFC's motives. Yeah, here. absolutely. That they're if, charging if, more because they want to give the fighters if more. David, that would be nice. If David Golden was the UFC vice president in charge of fighter relations and uh, he was he, this was actually what they were doing, I'd be all for it. Yeah, well, and not that there would ever be any way to verify that that's what the UFC had done. Uh, I mean... The thing, I just wrote a column about it today. What I really want, I guess, is for UFC, the UFC to make this case to us. Um, to say, yes, we're increasing the pay-per-view price for this one pay-per-view, $5, and here's the reason why. And I think you could make the case if you wanted to. You could just say, look at this card. It's pretty awesome. Uh, look at all the guys who are going to be on it. Big year-end cards. Or, you know, maybe this is what we do. The, the year-end card every year is awesome, and so it'll just cost you a little bit more. Because like you said, $5... Not a tremendous amount of money, not a huge increase. I mean, you're already paying 55 bucks to watch it in HD, so you can make that case to somebody that this one's worth a little extra. I think that the the thing that they don't want to get into is, hey, if the good ones cost more, why don't the shitty ones cost less? Right. I think that's why the UFC won't go out of its way to make this case here. But you got to say something. You can't. Dana White's explanation when he was asked why this one, why is this one going to cost more, uh, was because. That's seriously what he said. Right. Like, if you asked, like, a 14-year-old, like, why he's wearing, like, jeans with holes on all over him, and he just, he wants, you know, to be kind of obstinate about it, and he's just like, cuz. <laughs> right. And I, I have a, a column coming out on this same issue tomorrow. Uh, and A little late. A little late <laughs> to the party. One of the things that struck me about this is how jarring it is to hear a guy who is uh, as notoriously hands-on as Dana White Suddenly a topic comes up and he's just basically like, well, I'll, I didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, this is a dude who just told us a week before when he couldn't make it to Australia to watch Bigfoot Silva fight Mark Hunt. He set up a mobile control room in a ballroom in San Diego so he could watch and control the production like from 3000 miles away. And then suddenly this pay-per-view increase issue comes up and he's like, well, I don't know. I didn't do it. That, to me, is the most jarring part. And the thing is, like, we all know why the UFC is doing this. It's because it's a good card, and they think they can get more money for because it. Because it can. That's why it's doing right. it. And to me, like, just tell us that, man. Just tell us that and say, you know what? Cain Velasquez is super hurt and is going to be out for a long time. Anthony Pettis is hurt. Uh, George St. Pierre just retired. I don't know if you fuckers noticed. <laughs> but, like, uh, if, we, if we can charge $5 extra for the really good cards... God, you know, we just have to do it right now. Hell, man, even make up a story. Tell me that you need the money. Don't just stick it in my face by refusing to explain it. Yeah. And, I, and like I said, I think that you can explain it. I mean, as far as the what percentage is going to make its way into the fighters' pockets, you know, we don't know, obviously, the particulars of everybody's deal. But usually the way it seems to work and, you know, from what we've seen of, of contracts in the past uh, is usually fighters are offered, you know, a certain – you get, you know – $2 per buy after this level, and then you get $3 per buy after you hit this level. Uh, it's not necessarily a thing where you get this percentage of each pay-per-view 
price. It's like a set dollar amount. Makes me wonder if that's something that that they took into account here, thinking like, hey, you know, if you still owe them, you know, two dollars per buy at this level or three dollars per buy at that level, if you increase the price, that means more money coming to you, the UFC, even if it's fewer total buys overall. And that's what I would think would be kind of the the part I'd be concerned about if I'm the UFC, especially. You know, you got this big year-end card. Online piracy is a huge problem for you. You want these people to actually sit there and buy the cards, gather around with their friends. Like Dana White says, just get more friends to come over. Uh, And when you're increasing the price and not even really acknowledging it, just being like, hey, guess what? This one's going to cost you more. Pay it. You know, then I think like... that's when you get into the territory where some people might just stream your shit out of spite at that point, you know? Yeah, we all have that list of friends that we invite over for the pay-per-view and then that auxiliary list yes. of friends that we only invite over if the price goes up. Yeah. We yeah. don't have those friends. <laughs> and I mean, hey, man, if the story is that you're given that you promise the fighters more money or you have to pay Ronda Rousey more, or you have to pay Anderson Silva more again, man. Just tell me that that would be the most because sympathetic argument you will can make. shut me up. Yeah, which is what you want. Yes, that's what we all want. Anyway, the second piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Wayne F. He writes, should the UFC's foray into the 115-pound women's division prove a success? Can we realistically expect the standard women's divisions to be added in the future, all the way from 105 to 145? Also, can we just make every season of Tough a freaking tournament to crown a number one contender in a weight class or to fill a vacated belt? I'm now forced to give a shit about Tough 20, yet I feel that my shit givings will once again be rescinded immediately after the season ends. Please discuss. Well, for the second half of this question, yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. Uh, Tough 20 did suddenly become more relevant and more interesting than that show has been in uh, years, really, because for the first time ever, you're going to use it to crown an actual legitimate UFC champion. Uh, the winner of this tournament is going to get a piece of hardware to wrap around her waist that doesn't immediately become uh, obsolete as soon as the season finale is over, like they do with those weird glass trophies that everyone gets uh, for ordinarily winning uh, the Ultimate Fighter. But again, like you can't do that every time. This is a short-term fix. Like You can't create a new division or vacate a championship every time you need to cast a season of The Ultimate Fighter because they do like four seasons a year. So, uh, Well, the problem, I think, that... Because uh, I would love it if... You set up something that like this that would make us care about each stuff. But it's way easier to do that when you're introducing an entirely new division. Right. Especially when there's a ready-made division that you can just, just pick b- it up, buy off Invicta? the lot yeah. from Invicta, uh, kick the tires, and drive that sucker straight out into the street. Uh, so that, that, that definitely helped. So, yeah, it's a short-term fix. Um, and like... The first half of the, of the question, I guess, asks if they're going to add all of the women's divisions. And I would say probably not like if they do it's going to happen you'd think it would happen pretty slowly because uh the ufc already has such a large fighter uh roster and already has so many moving parts in its internal engine so to speak like i have i have no idea how you would like make the space for and or pay people at at what three or four different weight classes that you haven't even added yet yeah i the only thing that would convince me that the UFC would start adding some more of those weight classes is if they contained some kind of awesome superstar. Like, say, Invicta found some breakout awesome uh, 145er who's like a Diaz in a beautiful fucking body or something. Right. Uh, so and like Cyborg Santos, you're saying? A little different. <laughs> like Cyborg Santos, but different. Okay. Um or if it were, say, like somebody, they found somebody who was like like Cyborg Santos in a beautiful fucking body. Okay, there you go. <laughs> and, there you, go. And, you know, if there were some individual star, that we've got to have that person and we can't fit her into either of our existing weight classes, then I could see them creating that, that next division. I think if you want to watch and see what the UFC might be inclined to do in, with the women's divisions, just keep an eye on Invicta, it seems. Because whatever Invicta proves it can make work, then the UFC will just sit back, wait for that to work, and be like, that's good. Give us those people now. We want them. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, with that whole thing, I like the way Invicta approached that because there was no point in fighting with the UFC over it. And Invicta has kind of stayed true to that element of its roots that you trying to be the fight promotion that people want to fight in, not the one that you trap people in. And I think that's great for 
going forward because how can you then turn to your other fighters and say, hey, you should totally sign with me and, and help me build out this company if you wouldn't let these other women go for what everybody recognized was an awesome career opportunity. Yeah, we got some emails this week that were like, oh, man, what does this do to Invicta? And I was like, I don't know, make them incredibly happy because their best case scenario is probably to be as healthy as possible before the UFC buys all their fighters. There you go. Anyway, the next piece of listener mail this week comes from Ryan Manahan. He writes, both Mac Danzig and Cody McKenzie didn't have fight banners or sponsors this weekend. I don't know if it was some kind of statement on their parts, but I would assume that these tough alums, specifically Danzig, who was on the main card, should have been able to strike some deals and make a little extra cash. McKenzie couldn't even afford to cut the tag off his shorts. Is the UFC's sponsorship tax making it more difficult for fighters to make money? Granted, I understand that the UFC may want to distance themselves from the gun store or condomdepot.com, but Tim Kennedy's main sponsor, Ranger Up, seems like a brand that they would be proud to feature. What's really going on? Is this from Brendan Vera? No, but this is, you see, Ryan Manahan, who I believe won the co-main event White Elephant Essay Contest oh, okay. from year one, uh, which we need to do again, by the way. We promised we would do it on the podcast. I got some prizes sitting weeks around. Weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. We, got, we got prizes here, too. Uh, uh, he's an innovator and a scholar, Ryan Manhan. So you can see that instead of just going with disgust, he goes with what's really going on. Right, right. You know, first of all, uh, let's not confuse Cody McKenzie with Mac Danzig in this conversation because there's a big difference between going through the the whole thing of not only am I not going to have any sponsors, I'm going to put a message on the back of my shorts that, you know, like draws attention to the fact that I don't have any sponsors and just forgetting your shit in the hotel. Those are two very different things. Cody McKenzie just forgot his shit from what everybody says. Just didn't bring his stuff, had to send somebody out to a sporting goods store to get him some shorts, which I don't understand how that was seen as the easiest fix there. Wouldn't it be just as easy and perhaps better overall to send that same person back to the hotel to get his stuff for him? Like, just give him your little key card. I mean, like, I'm in 2148, man. Go up there, get my stuff, come on back. Like That seems so, easier than just trying to get him a pair of shorts that he can write the Alaska area code on. Part of your hypothesis, though, is that Cody McKenzie forgot to bring his gear but did remember to bring his room key? Because that <laughs> seems unlikely. Now, you and I were talking about this right before we started recording the podcast, and uh, it's almost a thing that makes you feel like this story doesn't add up. It almost makes you feel like you do have to ask what's really going on. Because if Cody McKenzie did really bring forget to bring his gear to the arena... Uh, it would have been really easy just to have someone go get it instead of go out and get him a white pair of Nike basketball shorts that he could scrawl something on with a Sharpie. Uh, my question is, could it be that Cody McKenzie just came to Sacramento empty handed? Like didn't, <laughs> didn't want to pay to check a bag or whatever. So he just walked on, uh, with his one corner man in tow and, uh, assumedly his skull candy earphones or whoever it is that sponsors the UFC to make people wear them earphones. I just can't really. I mean, maybe like everybody says, you know, that Cody McKenzie's kind of a weird dude. I find it interesting how, uh, Dana White, I think appropriately kind of placed the blame on his own staff for not catching that and seeing what was going on there before he got out there and did not really place the blame on Cody. Cause it seemed like everybody was just kind of realizing, well, hell man, Cody can't be held responsible for his own actions. Wardrobe wise. That's just unreasonable. An additional question, like, le more or less embarrassing, if you're Cody McKenzie, uh, to try to borrow a pair of shorts from someone else there instead of going out to buy a pair of Nike basketball sh shorts. Because you got to think, you're backstage at the UFC. Right. Like, there's no shortage of uh, actual fight gear back there. Yeah. No, I was talking about this with somebody yesterday and how, I mean... There seems to be a, a lot of people you could have asked to borrow shorts from. Maybe he did, for all we know. Maybe people were just like, oh, who needs them? Oh, no. No, you know what? No, thanks. I, I'm all out. Fresh out of fight shorts here. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about uh, Mac Danzig's no sponsors thing, because apparently right. that seemed more like a conscious decision um, from what people said that he had had. I mean, I think he's managing himself now, but that he had had the chance to sell some sponsorships, decided not to do it, uh, and instead went for the... Somewhat questionable decision to put the words not for sale across his own ass. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, on one hand, I, I kind of like it, I, especially if the message was uh, that, like, who, who was it? Chris Clements, maybe uh, somebody who went up, or Chris Camozzi, right. who yes. went up one of those ways to say, hey, you're all bringing the bar down for, for sponsorships by accepting these lower and lower paydays. 
stop doing that and it'll get better for all of us. If it was something like that, I would get it. When, the way they interpreted on the broadcast that he wanted to do this fight just for him and it wasn't about money, a little hard to say when you're fighting for, for, for money in a cage stripped to the waist. Right. Yeah, no, the UFC broadcast team's assertion that Mac Danzig would somehow fight worse if he was getting more money, like if he had sponsors, I didn't know that I totally bought that. Although, you know, Mac Danzig is a guy who's always been uh, a little bit more politically active or at least politically aware than uh, other fighters. So, you know, I could see him wanting to do this kind of stuff where he doesn't have any sponsors. And like you said, uh, I'm with him on that. If, if that's what he wants his personal choice to be, I, I respect it. And I think that it's at least shows that there's some stuff going on upstairs there that doesn't happen with your, uh, with your average fighter. At the same time, Anytime you do that, it's going to make you look like you couldn't get any sponsors like that. I mean, that's just how it's going to come off to to average Joe sitting at home watching this on Fox TV. Well, I thought really that he, the way he did it was the only way you could do it and have it not come off that way to put not for sale. Across if you your show ass. up with just blank shorts like Mark Hunt did uh, and no T-shirt, then it looks like you couldn't get sponsors. If you if you had enough forethought to put the not for sale on there, then it seems like you weren't willing to accept any. But one of the things about the sponsorship question, and I find that this kind of ties in to Dana White's comments about, uh, you know, the, the pay-per-view price is going up because, uh, is when asked about the trouble some guys have had getting sponsors, and, you know, there's several guys who have mentioned that, and I've heard it from a bunch of managers that the sponsor money just isn't what it used to be. Uh, and Dana White chalked it up to the economy, which he said was brutal, the economy not getting better, uh, and a lot of these businesses are having to think about where they want to spend their money, and it's not on UFC sponsorships. And so basically, economic forces beyond our control are hampering the sponsorship market. Because he knows. Well, He knows. He understands see, the economy. The, it's like when he says the economy, it's like when he says the government. It should just automatically be in all caps. Well, say he's right. Say that this is a like bad time economically, and that's what's affecting the sponsorship market. Well, then that would make it seem like it's also a terrible time to be increasing the pay-per-view price and launching a digital network, a, like a subscription-based digital network where you ask people to pay a monthly fee to get fights that you can't get on TV. Like right. those would seem to be terrible ideas during a bad economic downturn. Like how could, can both those things kind of coexist? It seems a little, you know, you got to at least acknowledge like, hey, maybe one of the reasons that the, the sponsorship market isn't that great is because people don't want to pay the UFC sponsor tax just to get in the door. Like right. Ranger Up has mentioned. The Ranger Up guys don't pay that. I mean, they say that hey, they still sponsor the guys that they sponsor, but they're not in there in the octagon because they don't a don't have enough guys for it to be worth it and just can't justify that as like how many t-shirts and jeans do you have to sell just to pay the ufc its money so you can then pay your fighter his money right now there's no question that having a tariff on on sponsors uh is probably forcing companies to look elsewhere with stuff to do with their sponsorship money especially since a couple years ago i remember you did a story about sponsor sponsorships and you talked to a bunch of people that sponsor fighters and asked them like how do you know that you're getting your money back and their across the board answers were we don't uh, there's yeah. no way to tell like we don't know if it's well, worthwhile to sponsor a fighter or not it seemed to it depended on uh, what kind of business they were i remember the training mask guy uh saying that he looked at sales within like 10 days, a week to 10 days after the fight. And that was what was telling him whether it, it was working or not. Um, but he also took a very different approach. Like he didn't, you know, sign guys to like these long-term deals where like, you know, you see the guy and he's always wearing dethrone. It was kind of before each fight, look around who's on the card. All right. Will you take uh, $1,500 uh, to put training masks on your shorts? You know, if you won't, somebody else will. Or you hear this guy got added late, didn't have enough time to shop around for sponsors. Boom, that's our guy. Let's put training mask on him. Uh, and I guess another interesting thing about that conversation was that Dana White said that the UFC is at work on a quote-unquote fix for the problem of, of sponsor money. Obviously, we don't know what that's going to be yet, although I think we could all maybe place some bets about whether or not that fix is going to involve the UFC just taking over the sponsor market in general uh, and then doling out money to fighters and maybe having a number of like official sponsors that they put people on, on people's shorts. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see how that plays out, although... If I had to guess, I'd say that's probably going to be part of it. Yeah, I'll reserve my judgment on that till we see how it works. Uh, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, when the UFC jumped the line to organize this quote-unquote special conference call with George St. Pierre to preempt his own scheduled press conference at, like, a mall in Quebec City or whatever, I thought for sure that we were going to see him announce that he was going into training camp to have a rematch with Johnny Hendricks because I guess that's just the way this stuff usually works. A guy tries to retire in the cage, the UFC gets mad, and a few weeks later the guy, having some time to think about it, decides that he would really rather to continue to get paid. Um, to really? Because say- I thought it was going to be George St. Pierre was going to announce at his own press conference that he was opening up a hot topic. And then, you know, then they schedule this one beforehand and suddenly it's, oh, George St. Pierre with the UFC opens a hot topic. Yeah, see, previous to his fight against Johnny Hendricks, I thought that he was going to open a Tim Hortons at the mall in St. Isidore or where, wherever he's from. Uh, so that could have been Always been a good investment, too. a Tim Hortons. Uh, <laughs> Those don't go out of business. This time around, though, it didn't go that way. Uh, instead, as we all know, he's announcing that he's giving up the belt and taking an immediate leave uh, to sort out what he called the quote-unquote zoo that has become his life. I guess, Ben, my opening question is, were you, like me, surprised initially that this was a retirement announcement of sorts and not a... Uh, Johnny Hendricks, I'm not impressed with your performance announcement. I was a little surprised, uh, I guess only because it seemed like this was such a reasonable and smart thing to do that the pessimist in me thought there's no way that it would happen. Like it seemed like, you know, that's too, too much to ask for. That GSP will be smart in all aspects of his career, including this one. But lo and behold, he was. And it seemed like, you know, you could get little hints like maybe Dana White walking back uh, some of his forceful statements about how GSP is not retiring, not going anywhere. He's going to do this fight. We're going to be fine. The rematch is going to happen. And then this week or last week before leading up to that announcement was kind of like, well, you know, we'll talk to him and we'll see. It's up to George. Uh, And you know that the USC wanted to do that rematch. There must have been some kind of trying to talk him into doing it. And uh, George St. Pierre stuck to his guns, did the right thing for him. And uh, just so shocking to see a fighter be that reasonable about it. Which is probably the thing that would typify his career, like the thing that we might remember him by when it's all said and done is that he, you know, in a sport that is so often uh, unplanned and for lack of a better term, not classy, uh, he kind (laughs) of always did did the classy thing. And maybe with the exception of that weird... Uh, quasi unretirement announcement that he made in the cage uh, after the Johnny Hendricks fight, uh, kind of a career without a ton of missteps in terms of uh, his public relations and like how he handled himself. I think that we both can probably agree that if George St. Pierre needs a break and doesn't want to fight for right now, that he should absolutely not do that and that he should take a break. I think you have to be kind of a son of a bitch to think uh, that George St. Pierre has like let us down in some way and that he absolutely should go back out there and continue to get punched in the brain pan if that's not what he wants to do. Right. Uh, I don't think we're going to get a lot of uh, descending opinions on that. Uh, However, right now, as we sit here, I feel like there's also no way that we've seen the last of George St. Pierre. Uh, But that's one of the things I really love about his announcement is that he he left that door open. Like because if he had said, that's it, I'm done this is the last time you'll ever see George St. Pierre, uh, you know, so long and thanks Wait, for all the money. This is the last time you'll see these gloves and these shorts and this octagon. <laughs> right. By the way, the gloves and the shorts will be on sale on eBay immediately <laughs> following the fight. Uh, if he had gone that route and said, this is absolutely it, we wouldn't believe it necessarily. Like we know how fighting goes that uh, you don't just retire all at once. Most of the time you need a few good, good tries at it. And so to do it this way, to say, I'm walking away, I'm not going to say when I'll be back, I'll probably be back, leaves the door open where you could do anything. Like it's the only retirement announcement from a pro fighter that you can 100% believe because he makes no promises. Right. I, I mean, if it does turn out to be his uh, his once and final retirement, seems kind of anticlimactic, though, for us to be like, well, he'll probably be back someday. And then five years from now, to just sort of be like, well, I guess George is probably done if he hasn't come back already. Uh, from his indefinite leave, which frankly, when you call it an indefinite leave of absence, it makes me think that George St. Pierre is a college football coach who got caught trying to organize a an NCAA tournament pool in his office. And so the <laughs> athletic director had to come in and put him on indefinite leave. Uh, but let me ask you this. What's your over under for George St. Pierre coming back? Like how long before George St. Pierre realizes that quote unquote normal life 
uh, doesn't have the sizzle that uh, stripping to the waist and fighting another human being in a in a locked cell uh, has and decides that he's going to get back into it. I guess I really hope that he takes at least a year off. I feel like that would be – I think if you, if you come back in less than a year, then I'm inclined to think it was boredom or something that – you know, like you said, you you, you realize normal life kind of sucks. Although let's let's be realistic, there's normal life for jerks like me and you, and then there's normal life for a rich, good-looking pro athlete. Like when you have money, your idea of normal life can be a little bit different. So it might be more fun than we're imagining it. I don't know. I would say if I had to guess, uh, a year and a half, he's back. Yeah, eighteen months. I, we talked about the pessimists in us, and I guess the pessimist in me would take the under on that. However, like if it turns out to be that short, if he's only gone for like nine months or a year, even a year and a half, eh, we won't even notice, right? I mean, aside from the fact that somebody else is running around with the belt, like George St. Pierre only fights once or twice a year anyway, so like uh, his indefinite leave might turn out to be somewhat less indefinite than we think. Yeah, I already feel like there's enough drama, there's enough of a story, and you know that if he does come back, and comes back as the challenger trying to recapture the belt, uh, you're just going to see like the same two commercials about that played on an endless loop, hopefully with a better soundtrack than the You and Me crap. Uh, but you know that the UFC will play up that storyline. So, I mean, I feel like that it's still going to feel like something regardless of how long he's gone. you got to stay gone at least six months, though. That's the thing. If yeah, you, you, no, can't, you can't Matt Riddle this thing. No, you can't. You can't go through this whole thing, thing with the call and all this discussion about it and then, you know, be back in March. Yeah. You just can't you do can't it. You can't make a 15-second video where you're like, I'm back. I'm back, guys. <laughs> yes. Trust me, I'm back. Uh, okay, well, let's talk about this. Obviously, this announcement touched off a, a frenzy of high-level fight announcements. We're going to get Johnny Hendricks versus Robbie Lawler for the welterweight title. Uh, Dana White obviously asked Nick Diaz if he wanted to come out of retirement to fight Carlos Condit, but he said no. So now we're going to get Carlos Condit against Jake Ellenberger, um, which, frankly, uh, as an aside, all kind of leaves both Matt Brown and former top contender Rory McDonald swinging in the breeze. Uh, but what do you make of all this? Is is uh, Hendricks versus Lawler the right fight for the uh, for the, I guess, not interim, but just straight up welterweight title. You know, I don't know if that's something we really want to overthink about who deserves to fight for the title because I feel like you got a lot of guys who are kind of right there with welterweight. And that's the good thing about it is that there's a bunch of different combinations that you could pair together. And this has been the case with the welterweight division for a while. And like we talked about, when there's been some of these fight cards in the past where the undercard has featured a lot of welterweight contenders going at it, and it makes it so that if somebody does get injured closer to the date, hey, man, swap them out. And get somebody else in there, pretty seamless. And you can still do that with the the Hendricks Lawler thing. I mean, I think Hendricks is kind of the no brainer because of how close that fight with GSP. Right. Uh, no, you have to put Hendricks in there one one way or another. Yeah, when GSP walks away, it kind of feels like Hendricks is almost the de-, de facto champion. Uh, and then Robbie Lawler, you know, he he's hot right now. Everybody wants to see Robbie Lawler, uh, see how far he can really go with that. And I never get tired of watching Robbie Lawler fight. So I don't really think there's anything you can criticize there except that I would have loved to see a four-man, possibly a one-night four-man welterweight Grand Prix. Just go old school on it. And you know Texas will let you do anything. They don't care. <laughs> that is a compelling idea. Uh, man, the idea that Robbie Lawler is going to fight for a UFC title in 2014 is bananas, frankly. <laughs> like Five years ago, if you had told me that that was going to happen, you know, I would have thought that you were drunk. But it is going to happen and i think that that is something that uh we can all feel good about especially since the fight with johnny Hendricks is obviously going to be a kick in the pants uh that's going to be a, a a tremendously fun fight which i don't think we can underestimate how much that probably played on the ufc's decision to put lawler into that fight uh not to mention his his current welterweight win streak which is uh impressive and has been since he came back to the ufc uh i don't know though if you're carlos condit Maybe you think of it as as a little bit of a slap in the face just because the timing with with you suddenly being freed up by Matt Brown's injury uh, couldn't have seemed more perfect. So now to know that you're going to have to go out there and fight Jake Ellenberger uh, might seem like a little bit of a letdown. You know, I don't know if you're Condit and you've already got a, a loss to Hendricks on the record. I feel like. If he's being realistic with himself, Condit knows that he's got to do a little bit more to get back in that conversation there or just sit around and wait for somebody else to get hurt, which, let's be honest, could totally, totally happen. 
is not unreasonable to think that by the time we get to March, it'll be, you know, Carlos Condit uh, versus somebody completely different for the welterweight title. Who knows what could happen between now and then. Uh, plus, I feel like just the absence of GSP, that dominating force on the welterweight division, it makes the, things just seem so fresh and new, right? Like, regardless of who wins the, the Hendricks, Robbie Lawler bout, you're going to have some interesting matchups going around there. If you're if you're Carlos Condit right now, you can get by thinking, this isn't going to be my only crack at the, the welterweight title. This thing uh, is kind of up for grabs right now. Uh, a whole lot of fresh new faces can get involved. Right, and that's honestly one of the things that surprised me about, oh, surprised me a little bit, I guess, about Nick Diaz turning down a potential rematch with Carlos Condit is that you would think with George St. Pierre out of the way, everyone kind of gets a fresh start and uh, clearly... One of Nick, one of the impediments in the way of Nick Diaz to being a UFC champion was the fact that he's probably never going to beat George St. Pierre. Uh, did it surprise you at all for him to say no when Dana White, uh, I guess cornered him in the hallway at UFC on Fox 9 and asked him if he wanted to fight Carlos Condit? Uh, and Diaz said no and said that he might come back in May. I don't know why he picked out that date. Perhaps it's the triathlon off season or something like it's that. It's after 420. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, good point, actually. Uh, but did it surprise you that Nick Diaz said no? And should we just give up on Nick Diaz at this point? Man, I have stopped trying to apply normal person reason to the behavior of Nick Diaz and his decision making. I just stopped doing it because you're just you're going to be wrong more often than you're going to be right. So, no, I mean, it would be hard for Nick Diaz to make a decision that surprises me at this point. Most people, yeah, probably would have been tempted uh, back into the fight game. But if anything, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we do this thing where when George St. Pierre is like, hey, I'm walking away in definite period of time, we're like, oh, hey, that's so awesome, man. We're great. When Nick Diaz takes a huge payday and then is like, screw this, I'm out of here, we're just like, yeah, you'll be back, you asshole. <laughs> you know, maybe Nick Diaz deserves a little credit for for, for his uh indefinite retirement again i feel like it might come down to the tenor of the delivery of the announcement but <laughs> that, that's, that could be that's just me anyway let's do are you fucking kidding me and then we'll move on to round number two ben this week my are you fucking kidding me took place at the ufc uf uh on fox 9 post fight press conference i don't know if you saw this uh but where pretty much the first words out of dana white's mouth when he was asked about uriah faber and uriah faber's uh uh impressive victory over michael mcdonald for was for him to say uriah Faber is in this Vitor Belfort zone where he just keeps getting better as he gets older. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? As uh, one of the guys who frequently emails the podcast, Damien Fontenot wrote in to say, those are not the same zones. <laughs> and frankly, if I was Uriah Faber, I would say, ho, 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 hold on there, Mr. White. Uh, Vitor Belfort and I are not doing the same stuff. Uh, I don't think our quote unquote training is the same. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just slow your roll there on on comparing me to one of the guys that we think might be one of the bigger cheaters in the sport. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Well, Chad, my are you fucking kidding me goes way down the card this weekend, all the way down to the very first fight, the Facebook prelim, um, which featured Alpatkino Skilak. Nailed it. Yeah. He crushed it, I think. Yeah, uh, that was pretty good. Uh, defeated uh, Darren, you... You win the Yama. Oh, nailed it. Yeah. And you're on fire. Yeah. Uh, split decision win there. Uh, and looked pretty good in his, his UFC debut. Uh, the quote sent out by the UFC afterwards exp where uh, he explains his nickname. As for my nickname, Turkish Delight, it's a sweet Turkish dessert. And I'm a sweet guy. So, it's fi so it fits me perfectly. First of all, are you fucking kidding me? Turkish Delight is an awesome nickname. Are also, me? are you fucking kidding me? I thought I just assumed that Turkish Delight was a completely unappealing sex act that nobody actually wanted to engage in. Yeah, that sounds like a weird move. Now I learn it's actually a food, which makes it seem even grosser even somehow. Even dirtier. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We're going to get started with round number two right now.
Well, Chad, I don't know what else you want from UFC flyweight champ Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. People said that he he wasn't a finisher, so he armbarred John Moraga late in a fight he was clearly winning. Then he goes out there and knocks Joseph Benavidez out cold. One punch seals the deal in the first round. Flyweights, y'all. Are you on board? I've been on board. No, you haven't. I've been on board. That's a lie. Hey, man, only one guy on this podcast used to work for Versus.com. <laughs> well, that I'm not going to argue that. Only uh, one guy on this podcast watched damn near every WEC. Well, okay. So you're, you're telling me, though, that when you first heard flyweight title fight main event, you were absolutely stoked? No, man. You thought it was going to be five rounds of little dudes chasing each other around a cavernous cage. Well, that is what I thought it was going to be, but I was actually kind of excited about that. <laughs> okay. Because I that like I to, can believe. I, I like to watch those guys fight that way, man. It's far and away the most technical division in the UFC because I guess when you only weigh 125 pounds and you're probably used to fighting much bigger dudes and training all the time, you have to get that way. Uh, frankly, in order to survive, probably, uh, from, from day in and day out, I was totally surprised that Demetrius Johnson came out and, uh, got his first KO win in his UFC career, uh, knocking out Joseph Benavidez in, in about two minutes. I think if anybody, if we thought this one was going to end by knockout, we thought it was going to be Joe B. Absolutely. Uh, but at the same time, I do feel like it does a lot for Demetrius Johnson's profile in the sport. Like you said, to come out and have two, uh, pretty convincing stoppages in a row after previous to that, putting together, I think seven decisions, uh, in a row. And, uh, you know, it's probably about what the flyweight, class needed. Um, I think that if these guys are going to come out there and start knocking each other out, uh, the way Demetrius Johnson did in this fight and the way we've seen Joseph Benavidez do and the way we've seen John Dodson do, uh, I don't know how you continue to not like it as a weight class unless you are just uh, the kind of guy who only is going to want to see the real big bulls in there going at it. Yeah. But then again, I mean, I feel like the thing that was stopping people from enjoying the flyweights before, I don't know if it was necessarily the lack of finishes. I mean, I feel like that's the thing everybody always points to. But again, some of the, the our favorite fights are fights that went to decision. I mean, look at Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva. It wasn't a finish in that one. Nobody's really complained about it. Right. So I don't know. I think sometimes that that's a, a red herring in these types of arguments. So I mean, you think it's just overall smallness? Maybe. Uh, and maybe just that, that technical fighting style uh, leads to just less overt violence that normal people can appreciate i don't know i mean i don't know what it is do you feel like after seeing this that uh now you could have a, a pay-per-view headlined by the the flyweight title fight do you do you think that it made an, an actual difference in the way uh fight fans perceive the weight class probably not because people are dumb like you, you know you're asking me to delve into a world that i am not qualified to delve into and not at all interested in and that is ratings and who's marketable and why one guy can main event a pay-per-view or whatever um clearly the ufc has been a little bit gun shy about that they you, they keep putting the quote-unquote world championship uh, on the line on these Fox shows, which I guess is great exposure for the flyweights, uh, but but also pretty telling in the fact that they don't want to put them on uh, pay-per-view television. Um, but I mean, I don't know how long that's going to be the case, especially if uh, if it comes to the to the surface that we're going to get stoppages in these fights. Like, uh, of they're fast as shit, they're cool to watch fight, and they be knocking each other out. I don't know what's not to like, honestly. Yeah, I, I guess the the problem you have now is that the top of the division seems like just kind of a, a rotating cast here. What are you going to do now with uh, Demetrius Johnson? Have him another rematch uh, with John Dodson? I mean, probably. I would, I would like to see that fight again. I mean, I feel like, especially John Dodson with a little more experience, like you said, he he is one of those dudes who seems like he can go in there and knock some people out. So yeah, I would see that again. I would also see that that's just another UFC on Fox card. I mean, I guess maybe the question is, if that is the fate of the flyweights in the UFC, that they're always just going to be free TV fodder, um, you know, and then that sense probably end up making a little less money because they're just smaller guys and the, the interest is a little different in them. Is that okay? Uh, I mean, it is for me. I feel okay yeah, with Because you don't give a damn about anybody. At the, at the same time, though, uh, you know... It probably wouldn't hurt to have 
a, for lack of a better term, more marketable personality as a guy who has the belt because I really like Demetrius Johnson. I think he's an incredible fighter. He's obviously one of these young guys that the UFC has that kind of changed the game in terms of the, the, the well-rounded skills that they have, but like, ah, he's super nice and you know, he's, he's religious. He's never going to really trash talk. He's always going to keep it pretty, uh, pretty uh classy and i mean maybe if you're an established star like george st pierre like we talked about earlier in the show that works but like it almost feels like you need a sort of like ronda rousey figure at 125 or like somebody who's going to come in there uh you know talking shit and taking no guff yeah uh putting all these people on notice just like a uh like the old uh quote from from the character michael in the wire which i've used in the past to describe women's fighting uh, everybody just too motherfucking friendly. Like that could be part of the problem with, with flyweights. Maybe you have a more uh, Diaz style figure near the top of the division. People might be willing to overlook the, the, like the smallness and the, the low weights uh, just to kind of invest in the personality, especially if the, if they're going to deliver the goods inside the cage. I mean, clearly, right. The public is interested in small fighters. Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather are not enormous dudes. For some reason that plays in boxing in a way that I guess it just hasn't played yet in MMA. Yeah. And I mean, I guess then that gets us into that conversation. And uh, Danny Downs and I got into this a little bit in our trading shots column this week about what is it that gets you to be that kind of personality that people are interested in rather than just them being interested in your fighting skills? Because I agree with you. Demetrius Johnson, not going to be that guy. Like, I really admire what he can do. He's a great athlete, great fighter, does just about everything really, really well. Um, but at the same time, if I'm scrolling through uh, like a forum and there's a topic about Demetrius Johnson or like a link to like a Demetrius Johnson interview, I'm not especially interested. Um, but then, like, you bring up Mac Manny Pacquiao, and Pacquiao's not necessarily one of those guys. Like, I mean, Floyd Mayweather clearly has a has a thing he's doing, and Pacquiao is not necessarily doing that similar kind of thing. Why does that guy become a star and a guy like Demetrius Johnson just can't? I mean, it's that quality you can't quite put your finger on, which I think has got to suck if you're Demetrius Johnson and people are like, hey, man, we don't dislike you, but we also just don't really like you, and we can't explain why. Yeah, and a big part of that might be the lack of the depth in the division. There's just not that many guys, you know? So it's uh I don't know that there's one like breakout personality that uh that that you can kind of hang your hat on if you're trying to promote 125 pounders. Hopefully that gets better like as the uh as the weight class continues to persist in the UFC, uh you start to see more and more guys end up there. Um you're probably going to have something of a race to the bottom just in terms of the weight classes uh, where guys continue to try to cut weight to get into the smallest weight class that they can get into as we've seen uh, you know at, at featherweight where you've got a lot of lightweights now coming down there seriously um, we should just wait for Uriah Faber to to cut all the way just down. to see how low he can go lose another title fight and then boom. yeah I mean like I think that the, this entire discussion kind of uh, underscores the point that flyweight's not a perfect division right now. You don't have very much competition and uh, we don't have very many personalities so far that, that we can really latch onto. You'd say maybe John Dodson is one of the only guys that seems like a, like he has a really magnetic personality. Uh, and, and at the same time, uh, you know, maybe not a guy who, who uh, has gotten to the top yet. Uh, clearly he got, pretty close but uh he hasn't been able to to knock off the champ yet so i don't know how you know what his ceiling is exactly well and i mean here we are talking flyweights and we're just completely riding off the turkish delight well that guy's a flyweight yeah well there you go there's your marketable personality turkish delight y'all he's, he's a sweet guy his nickname he's named after a dessert possibly a uh, sex act who knows <laughs> it's uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm into it uh, anything that you want to add about, about flyweights here, about Demetrius Johnson, about Joe Benavidez, I assume we'll get into some more talk about Benavidez in, in round number three. Uh, although maybe just, uh, fitting to say here, tough, tough loss for him, a guy that seems, uh, super nice and, and like yeah. a smart guy and a guy who's, who's, uh, uh, you know, one of the better guys in the sport for him to have lost this fight now is his second crack at the flyweight title and to have already kind of been chased down from 135 
could be kind of a, a tough situation for Benavidez and maybe his best case scenario now is just to, like you said, hang around and hope somebody gets hurt or hopes that somebody knocks off Demetrius Johnson from the top. Yeah, which seems tough because it seems like the longer Demetrius Johnson is champ, the more he settles into the role and uh, like you might have wanted to beat him uh, a year ago rather than trying to unseat him uh, in the next couple of years to come. He seems like he's only getting tougher. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, we're going to talk Team Alpha Male, probably some more Joseph Benavidez stuff in round number three. That starts right now. Ben, it was kind of a mixed bag for Team Alpha Male this weekend at uh, the interestingly named Sleep Train Arena in their hometown of Sacramento. Uh, you had Uriah Faber and Chad Mendez get wins over top opponents, but then, uh, as we talked about in the last round, Joseph Benavidez obviously got knocked out, and Danny Castillo dropped a decision to Edson Barboza, albeit in a fight that maybe he managed to make closer than a lot of people were anticipating. Uh, since we already talked about Joe B, maybe we'll circle back to him later in the round, but let's start with Uriah Faber, man. He's uh, Here's a guy 34 years old, has had more title shots than can easily be counted. Uh, that's actually not true. He said five, uh, <laughs> but that's still a lot. And uh, a guy who came out in a, against uh, Michael McDonald, who the, who was the number three guy in the world, uh, and proved that in his mid-30s could still put a whooping on uh, one of the guys who at 22 we thought was a you know maybe the future of the division uh uh so are you surprised that Uriah Faber can continue to kind of keep his name in the in the among the top uh competitors at whatever weight class he decides to stop in you know I'm not surprised that he won the fight I when we had to do our staff picks for this one I picked Faber uh I am surprised that he won it that decisively and made it look that easy i mean not a whole lot happens in the first round kind of but you know he never really let mcdonald get any offense going uh absolutely blasted him on the feet and then took that opportunity as soon as he saw it locked on that guillotine and finished i mean that just shows you the that experience and savvy and confidence uh that you just can't make many mistakes against that guy you know and i it is kind of amazing to see how he he keeps getting older, but the those parts of his game, the experience, you know, his ability to adapt inside the fight, only seem to get better. We don't really see him slowing down or anything too much. Uh, you look at him and you kind of can't see why he shouldn't be right there in the running for bantamweight title fight, and yet at the same time, he already has recent losses to both the bantamweight champions, interim and actual. Yeah, and your Uriah Faber has been a guy that I've quibbled with in the past just because he has gotten How dare you, sir? How so dare you many, quibble? He's gotten so many title shots, shots at the at titles in both the bantamweight and featherweight divisions and, you know, in the past, I've sort of felt like the only reason he was getting those title shots is that he's one of the most popular fighters in both of those divisions, maybe the most popular fighter. But then every time I commit myself to that idea, he goes out and just hammers somebody like Brian Bowles, who remember uh, Brian Bowles was the guy that he beat. On, right on the heels of losing his first bantamweight uh, title shot against Dominic Cruz. And beat his ass, Yeah, too. came out, just destroyed Brian Bowles, and then they immediately uh, fast-tracked Faber into a, a shot at the uh, interim title against Henan Barrao, the monster. The monster, Henan Barrao, the monster. And at that point, you think, all right, guy loses a title shot, only has to get one win, and he's back in another title fight. That's when you start thinking, ah, is this guy just benefiting from being the most popular guy in the division? But at this point... I feel like that is dead as a uh, viable belief since every time I start to think that's the case, this guy goes and rips off four more wins and just totally trounces Michael McDonald in a fight that was not close. So uh, yeah, he I mean, shut my mouth, yeah. I guess. He doesn't lose non-title fights. Yeah, he's, he's never lost one. That is a that's a crazy, a crazy stat in 40 fights. Well, uh, he's never lost a non a non-title fight. Uh, let me ask you this, though, before we go on. Uh 
can Uriah Faber beat Barrow or Cruz, whichever guy emerges from their February 1st fight as the champion? I mean, can he in the sense that anything could happen? Sure. I wouldn't pick him in either one of those fights, though. Uh, I mean, especially if he fought either one of them, you know, in one of their best forms. If you got to fight Dominic Cruz coming off a long injury layoff, then sure. Uh, I might pick him for those reasons for the same reason that I'd pick Henan Barrow over Dominic Cruz just because that layoff is going to have some kind of effect on him, I think, uh, no matter what he says to the contrary. But, I, I mean, I think we've seen how those fights went. I mean, his fight with Cruz a lot closer than his fight with Barrow, but I can't say that I'd like his chances uh, any better in, in a rematch with either one of those guys down the road. At the same time, though, I mean... You look at like the the alpha male guys as a whole, and right now I feel like people are going to say those guys can't win a title fight because you look how successful they've been. Like Cage Potato had a great uh, breakdown of it by Reed Coon about just showing how much better they've gotten since Dwayne Ludwig came and worked with them, and they were already really good, uh, and yet still no titles there, uh, and have had several title shots between you know their. Guys like uh, Faber, Mendez, and Benavidez. At this point, it seems like you could just say, hey, well, it just hasn't gone their way in the title fights, whatever. It's not necessarily uh, indicative of anything they're doing wrong. Eventually, though, I feel like even if that's true, it might start to get in their heads. You know, why is it that we're kicking everybody's ass but can't win the title fight? Uh, well, let's talk about Chad Mendez then, as uh, if you're not going to pick Uriah Faber against either Barrow or Cruz, um, Chad Mendez has looked awfully impressive in all of his fights, except for maybe this most recent one where he took a lot of heat uh, on the broadcast, essentially kind of got buried by Joe Rogan for a lot of it uh, as he was uh, – beating the tar out of Nick Lentz, but not necessarily uh, stopping him or doing it in such an explosive and dramatic fashion as, as we've seen from Mendez uh, sometimes. But like he's, you know, he's, I believe, I don't have it in front of me, but I think he's 16 and one. Uh, his only loss coming to Jose Aldo, obviously in a fight where Mendez supporters will always point to the fence grab uh, that, that Jose. There's something to that. that, that I mean, that, he grabs the fence and then knocks him out pretty quickly after that. Right. Uh, so if he does get, get into this title shot, which I think he should at this point, always makes me mad when people try to take that away from a guy because he had the uh, audacity to go to decision with a tough guy like like Nick Lentz. Let's say Chad Mendes finds his way into a uh, fight against Jose Aldo or whoever emerges from the Jose Aldo-Ricardo Lamas fight as the featherweight champion. Does Chad Mendes represent Team Alpha male's best chance at a world title at this point yes i say he absolutely does represent their best chance i mean will he win it i don't know it's still a tough fight uh and you know you could see how it could go either way but i would say if you were going to ask me who from team alpha male is most likely to become a ufc champion i'd say chad menace and even in this fight you saw it in in brief flashes you know because he talked afterwards about how he had a sinus infection and he was really feeling sick as the, the fight wore on but for the first say two minutes two and a half minutes of the first round it looked like Nick Lentz was in for a very bad night. It uh, looked like Chet Mendes is going to put him away any time. And then, you know, he kind of slowed down and seemed like he had to pace himself just to get through the fight. Uh, but you could still see him in, like, when he can put it together, the guy is so athletic and so fast. And now that uh, he has a guy like Dwayne Ludwig working with him to tighten up some of the striking game, um, you know, that guy does a lot of things that can really be dangerous to a dude like Aldo, you know, and I, I would definitely want to see that rematch because I feel like he's gotten so much better since the first fight. Uh, and the idea of people just burying him because uh, he dominated Nick Lentz but only won a decision, you know, did not absolutely throttle him. When you get into that kind of criticism, you're basically saying the fight never should have been made in the first place. Because if the, if the only way for the guy to come out looking good is to absolutely annihilate the other guy, if that's the only situation that will be acceptable, then you're saying, like, it was a mismatch from the very start. And I don't think, I mean, Nick Lentz, as you said, Nick Lentz is a tough guy, especially at featherweight. You know, he's not somebody to be taken lightly. The fact that Mendez could beat him up and then, you know, I don't want to say coast, but uh, do what he needed to do to get through that one uh, and have there be no doubt that he won it, I mean, I think that just tells us something about how good Chad Mendez is. Right, and probably stands as a testament to Nick Lance, too, just uh, for 
all-around toughness. I mean, he's a guy who probably gets underestimated a lot by people just because, again, we don't like his fighting style and people are critical of him for being boring and having a wrestling-based uh, uh, style. But, you know, came into this fight 3-0 uh, and since coming down to that division and uh, was able to give Chad Mendes a, at least a, a, a th- you know a three-round fight when it looked like things would be over for him in a hurry at the very beginning. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a... a a double-edged sword of Chad Mendez not only living up to possibly unrealistic expectations, but also Nick Lentz being a tough dude. Yeah. You know, one of the other ones I wanted to talk about, though, was that uh, the Danny Castillo-Edson Barboza fight, right? Like, Danny Castillo loses that one by majority decision. Two judges give it to Barboza. One judge has it a draw. That's one of those fights where I think the scoring uh, question becomes really interesting and tough uh, because... For one thing, it's a great fight. Uh, Danny Castillo comes out there on the first round and just smashes Edson Barboza. Looks like he's going to knock him out. Then looks like he's going to choke him out. Dominates him through the entire round. You know, Barboza, when he gets up to go back to his corner, just leaking blood all down his face. Uh, And then Barboza comes out in round two and is still as quick and as vicious as ever with those kicks. Which, you know, at that point, you got to imagine Danny Castillo is thinking, oh, shit. Uh, you know, kind of spent a lot of emotional energy thinking you're going to finish the guy. And then he comes out and he's still that sharp. He's not showing other than the blood all over his face, not showing any signs that you just spent five minutes kicking his ass. Like that's got to be a little worrisome, but you have a fight there where round one Castillo beats the tar out of Barboza round two Barboza turns the tables, you know, beats some of the tar out of Danny Castillo, but seems not quite as close to finishing him as as Castillo was in the first. And then the third, Castillo kind of fades and Barbosa wins it uh, by, you know, the narrowest margin of any round in that fight. Then, you know, we have some of the judges who are like, if they're just going to be like 10-9 to, to the winner regardless, uh, it creates a, a like an interesting question because we talked before about how they should ward more 10-8s to reflect the difference between winning around by a little and winning around by a lot. It makes you wonder if you need still more uh, room to, to maneuver in there. Like, you know, is one a 10, seven, then a 10, eight, then a 10, nine. I mean, how would you score that one? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough question. And uh, you know, we, we also heard a lot leading up to this event about uh, that these judges and how they were, uh, you know, they all had a purple belt or higher in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the California State Athletic Commission seemed to make it a point of emphasis that they uh, that they had the best judges that they could find and that that all the judges were super qualified. And I don't know that there was a fight where they they totally got it wrong. And on a card where you go seven decisions in a row, uh, that had plenty of opportunities, you had plenty of opportunities to screw up. So the judges probably did a capable job. But I think you're also right in uh, in in this criticism, I guess, of the 10-9 uh, uh, a 10 point must scoring criteria that, that it does seem like in MMA where there's far fewer rounds than, than boxing, uh, maybe they do need to make a little bit better and more frequent use of other scores, 10, eight, 10, seven, what have you. Um, you know what I like about Danny Castillo though, is that his nickname is all about how much he likes to party. Yeah. I know and you like that. He bring, he wears that tuxedo to the weigh-ins. Like when you're a professional fighter and, and your nickname is last call and you're still doing it at the highest level. I think that speaks highly of you. <laughs> really do. Yeah, you you like a guy who's going to come in there smelling like booze and dirty strippers, don't you? And still put the stamp on kids. You know this about me. Uh, well, uh, I don't know if there's anything we wanted to add about Joseph Benavidez. Uh, we kind of said it all maybe in round two. Just a tough spot for him to be in. Although a guy who's not terribly ancient, you know, I think he's 29. He still has time to 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 get there, to get to the mountaintop. Although probably going to be tough for as long as Demetrius Johnson is is champ at flyweight. Yeah. Well, one of the things I because I I like Joseph Benavidez and I know him pretty well and he he is a good dude. And one of the things he said going into this fight was that. Uh, he felt the mistake he made in the first one was building it up too much, obsessing about it in a way that he didn't with other fights. Um, and then he lost, you know, lost a split decision in that first one. And he said, well, okay, then I kind of realized, oh, so that's the worst thing that happens is you lose the title fight. Um, and I realized it wasn't so bad. So, you know, he was saying he was way more relaxed coming into this one. And then this one, he gets knocked out in the first round, which I would think might make you realize, oh, wait, no, that other one wasn't the worst thing that could happen. This is the worst thing that could happen. You know, I'd be curious to know kind of how he feels now, how he views it, because he's a smart guy and can, I'm sure, you know, kind of think his way through some of that. But this has got to be, you know, 
a tough spot. Like that can be a career dead end for you, especially when you're already in the lightest men's class that the UFC has. I mean, if there's anybody I think who can rebound and, and will keep his head together through it, it seems like Benavides will be that guy. Uh, but you do feel for him, especially because it's one of those, it's not like he went in there and just got, you know, beat up from start to finish. It's both guys throwing right hands. The other guys gets there a little quicker and your head is caught up a little bit too high and bang your lights are out. It kind of seems like that can happen to you at any point in an MMA fight. Except I thought that uh, power was just something you were born with that you couldn't, it was weird. It was one of the weird things in sports. You just, you just couldn't get power. It's yeah. just, you have to be born with it. What happens is you can either get it from, uh, the Almighty, the 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 Creator, God, the man he, upstairs. Yeah, the man upstairs can give it to you, or uh, you can get it from your doctor uh, if you have the right paperwork. Or, and this is the one a lot of people don't know about, if you save enough of those tickets from the skee ball machines. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I believe that's how Demetrius Johnson got his. <laughs> well, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. What's your just saying stuff for episode eighty-two, Ben? Well. I'm just saying a lot of people took note of this during uh, the, the the undercard, the, the prelim portion. Uh, as you saw, uh, former uh, Bellator champion Zach Makovsky uh, beat Scott Jorgensen in a pretty convincing and, and impressive decision uh, in the, the flyweight division also. And, you know, here's a guy, was a Bellator champion, uh, made his exit after... Uh, Couple consecutive defeats in Bellator, fought in some small places like like fought in RFA just pretty recently. Went uh, I believe five hard rounds in, in the RFA just back in November. Then comes in here in the UFC, does pretty well. Uh, I'm just saying, how can we keep up the ruse that Ben Askren's Bellator accomplishments mean absolutely nothing? When, A, you got guys you never heard of on basically every card, guys making their debuts with only a handful of fights, and B, now you have other former Bellator champions coming in and doing well. You just can't keep up this line that Bellator experience means nothing and Bellator guys have proven nothing. I'm just saying, time to drop it and and just admit why you didn't want Ben Askren there in the first place. Just Just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, this week, I'm just saying, we just talked about this with Chad Mendez, but I'm just saying that we really need to stop preemptively trying to take away a guy's title shots before their fights are even over, uh, like we did to Chad Mendez this week when he was fighting with Nick Lance. It just further underscores what a weird mix of sports and entertainment we have in mixed martial arts. Chad Mendez has won five fights in a row. Like we said, he's 16-1. and one. He pretty thoroughly beat up a Nick Lance, a guy who was 3-0 and as a featherweight. And all the while, Chad Mendez is dominating the fight. Uh, people are going to stand around and essentially be like, boring and try to say that Chad Mendez doesn't look very good, that he's not doing very much to make his case for another fight with Jose Aldo. I don't mean to mix, uh, mix venues here, but are you fucking kidding me? People like let's, let's just, let's just have the guys go out there, sinus infections and all fight each other. Then we'll take the guy who has the most wins over the best people and give him a title shot. Even if we don't like how he got there. Oh, it's so like a sport. I'm just saying. saying. Yes, like a sport. Oh, interesting. Interesting idea. Anyway, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. Uh, we'll be back next week to preview everything that's going to happen at that UFC 168 card. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it stands to be pretty all right. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We are out. Seriously, if I told you I wanted to have you over to my house this weekend for a little Turkish delight, you're not even going to think twice about whether you want a part of that? probably say no to that offer, you know, I'll send you a thank you card and say that I couldn't make it. I assume that since you hadn't invited me already that I must be on the list of guys that you 